Welcome to the Rebel at Large Adventure Podcast. I'm Drifter. And I'm Gypsy. Talking about ghost towns, graveyards, outlaws, heroes, and ladies of the night. Howdy folks, thanks for joining us for yet another adventure. Today we are taking you to a place known for a moment around the country, then quickly forgotten. We are talking to you about a place and a time where man, machine, passion, and perseverance all come together nose to nose. This is a small area known as Promontory Point in Utah, where the union of the Transcontinental Railroad came together. So last Saturday night, Little Gypsy was hanging out with us and asked us if we could go exploring the next day. She wanted to go somewhere she could take her Polaroid camera and get some fun pictures. We had a lot of leftover film from the wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not very often that she wants to hang out with us since, you know, she's in her teenager phase and thinks her parents aren't cool. <laughs> so yeah, she's probably right. <laughs> well, we figured if she was wanting to spend some time with us, we better take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. So Sunday morning, we loaded up the new adventure rig and headed north to visit the Golden Spike National Park. We had just done some work on the new Adventure Mobile and thought this would be a good chance for us to test it out and make sure it was working. Yeah, this is the uh, the first Ford I've had in a long time for the sort of a reason, I reckon. A uh, common issue for these is the thermostat housing taking a shit, which this one had done and needed a fixing. It wasn't hard though, right? No, not too bad. Yeah. Well, the Golden Spike National Historic Park is about an hour and a half away from Salt Lake. And we had never been, and we've been wanting to go and check it out for a while. We also thought it was close enough to test out the work done on the adventure rig. And if we had any issues, we were so close enough to home, we could call for help to somebody, right? Triple A. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The one time we tried to go to the park, it was for the 150-year anniversary of the Golden Spike. And we found out that you needed tickets to go, but it was too late for us to get them. Unfortunately, we didn't make it, but we did put the next anniversary on our phones, so we'll try and make it to that one. Mm -hmm. Well, let's lay some tracks back in time and tell you all about what some call the most important site in our country, west of Independence Hall, that is. Prior to the rail lines being completed, folks were crossing the country, headed out west on horses, wagons pulled by oxen, and even walking. A journey that would take them about six months to complete was drastically cut down to about six or seven days once the train was able to run from coast to coast. If they wanted to move large loads that wouldn't fit on a wagon, the only other option at that time was to put it on a boat and ship it on a slow journey around Cape Horn or across the Isthmus of Panama. The thought of having a train run across the nation was an unbelievable concept, but many of the wealthy businessmen knew this was what the country needed. Mm-hmm. The Civil War brought attention to the country that without a fast way to reach the West, they were an easy target for any country wanting to take them over. They needed to be able to quickly move men and supplies to the area to provide support. Though the United States was not the first to create and run the steam train, they were the first to lay the amount of track it took to join the East to the west. So when you were just saying about having to load large um, shipments Mm -hmm. on on boats, was that not what the lady was saying happened to the bar back at the birdcage in Tombstone? Yeah, it was shipped around the country. That was the common route to come from New York. So any of the folks going to California that were going by boat would Mm -hmm. take that route all the way around the bottom of the country. Yeah, because nobody would insure on the wagon, I think she said. So Mm. yeah, I just that kind of popped into my mind right then. I'm like, I think we talked about that. Yeah, recently. 
1830, the East had begun building rail lines, but each line was privately funded. They had no regulation on track size, and they did not connect like they do today. So if you were traveling in the East by train, you would have to buy a ticket for several different rail lines, make several different stops, and change trains several times before you reached your final destination. Which we also talked about that with the Pinkertons and Abraham Lincoln having to trade trains. Mm-hmm. And I just thought of that too. It was part that. of the assassination attempt. Yep. Yeah. So though there were about 31,000 miles of rail, none of them crossed beyond the Missouri River. Well, having a rail line that would span across the country would make it easier to trade supplies. It would shorten travel time, allowing more folks to move out west, and mine owners could easily move their material to the smelters. In 1862, Theodore Judah convinced wealthy men from Sacramento to form the Central Pacific Railroad. He wanted to build a rail line over the Sierra Nevada mountains and knew he couldn't do it without their help. That same year, Congress authorized Central Pacific to build a railroad eastward, starting in Sacramento. They also gave the Union Pacific Railroad the same authorization, but they were to start in New York and move west. Each railroad received loan subsidies of 16000 to 48000 bucks a mile, depending on the difficulty of the terrain. So that would be about 438000 to over $1.3 million today. That's quite spendy. Uh, they also got 10 land sections for each mile of track laid. This means they would be paid to lay the track, and the railroad would own a section of the land around the track. Which I think they still own part of the land on it mm-hmm. some in some areas. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, so it's kind of a lot of land that they would get once they built the track on it. Mm-hmm. Central Pacific began work on the track in January of 1863, and Union Pacific got to work that December. Movement on the track was slow to begin because the Civil War was going on. The men were needed to fight the war, and supplies were very limited. Once the war was over, work began to finally move on the rail lines. Right from the start, the Central Pacific was faced with the task of passing through the Sierra Nevada range, while the Union Pacific, though they started on easier terrain, was faced with the tax from the Sioux and Cheyenne. The Union Pacific, having started from the east, where all the supplies were easier to obtain and starting on much flatter ground, gave them an advantage over the Central Pacific. They had to ship equipment, tools, every rail, spike, and finishing plate 15,000 miles from the Atlantic coast around Cape Horn. Once they got enough supplies to start, they were faced with the task of passing over mountain ranges now. So having enough men to work the rail lines was the next biggest problem for actually both of the lines. The Central Pacific was unable to find men to work for them because most of them had gone to work in the gold and silver mines, hoping to strike it rich, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they actually resorted to using Chinese laborers. And it turned out these men were some of the hardest working. And soon they were sending ships to China to recruit more men. By 1865, there were 7,000 Chinese men. And by 1868, they had 11,000 Chinese men working for them. The Union Pacific had an easier time getting men once the Civil War was over anyway. The men they were able to get were a mix of Irish, German, Italians, Civil War vets from both the North and the South, ex-slaves, and even American Indians. This kind of made for a pretty hostile work environment, and a lot of the men would get into fights while working, if you could imagine. Yeah, I'm sure, huh? Though each company was starting on different ends of the country, the work they did was very similar. 
Ahead of the men, they would send a surveying party made up of engineers, roadmen, flagmen, and a cavalry escort if they were in Indian territory. Then came the graders. These men would prepare the land, usually around 100 miles at a time. If the terrain was more difficult, like passing over a mountain, they would work about 200 to 300 miles in advance. These men would use picks and shovels for easier grades, and for more difficult cuts, they would bring in horses or mule-drawn wagons. They're not using heavy equipment like we have today. No no John Deere's. Yeah, definitely just tedious, back-breaking work. Mm-hmm. Then came the men to build bridges, culverts, and trestles. They would work about 5 to 20 miles in advance. Behind these men came the track layers, and this was the most exciting part of building the railroad the actual laying of the lines. Hmm. <laughs> so a correspondent from the East described this event as saying, A light car, drawn by a single horse, gallops up to the front with a load of rails. Two men seize the end of the rail and start forward, the rest of the gang taking hold by twos until it is clean of the car. They come forward with a run. At the word of command, the rail is dropped in its place, right side up with care, while the same process goes on at the other side of the car. Less than 30 seconds to a rail for each gang, and so four rails go down per minute. The moment the car is empty, it is tipped over on the side of the track to let the next loaded car pass it, and then it is tipped back again. And it is a sight to see it go flying back for another load, propelled by a horse at full gallop at the end of 60 or 80 feet of rope. Close behind the first gang comes the gaugers, spikers, and bolters, and a lively time they make of it. It is a grand anvil chorus. It is in triple time, three strokes to a spike. There are ten spikes to a rail, four hundred rails to a mile, eighteen hundred miles to San Francisco, Twenty-one million times are those sledges to be swung. Twenty-one million times are they to come down with their sharp punctuation before the great work of modern America is complete. I love that. Twenty-one million times. Uh That's a lot of hammering. (laughs) Yeah, I killed John Henry. (laughs) Well, at the end of the track was base camp, and this was where the men would spend their time when they were not working. It was made up of tents for the men to sleep in. All of the materials and supplies were needed, as well as bars and tents for the ladies entertaining the men. Kind of like a moving town, right? Yeah, exactly. This is where the uh, Hell on Wheels show was inspired from. Oh, okay. I watched that, actually. I liked that movie. I've only seen parts of it that you showed me, but never watched the whole thing. Well, we'll have to change that. Yeah. As the rails advanced on, the camp moved along with it. Some people, they just absolutely loved the area that they were camping in so much that when the rail lines and camps moved on, they would just stay. We have some big cities still today from this event happening. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, Central Pacific got almost a year's start before the Union Pacific began working. But from the start, they encountered the toughest work they would ever face. They spent nearly four years trying to cross over the Sierra Nevada mountains. In order for them to accomplish this, they had to fill in large cuts in the range, blast through granite to build 15 tunnels, and build trestles. They were also faced with severe weather and large amounts of snow. To protect the track from any snow slides, they built 37 miles of wooden snowsheds and galleries. By the time Central Pacific had conquered the Sierra Nevada, Union Pacific had laid 348 miles more line than they had. 
Yeah, the Sierra Nevadas are still terrible to cross over today. <laughs> yeah, try going over Donner's Pass in the winter. Mm-hmm. We've been stuck up there before. Uh-huh. The Union Pacific was met with their own problems as they reached Wyoming. While trying to find a route across the Wyoming Black Hills, they were met with the Sioux and Cheyenne Indians. These tribes did not want the railroad to pass through their land. They knew if this was accomplished, it would be the end of their way of living. The tribes would place large sticks on the tracks to derail the train. They would tear up tracks in the middle of the night. And in the cover of the hills, they would fire shots at the surveying teams and killing several of them and escaping without harm. Union Pacific was faced with a lesser but similar task that Central Pacific was faced with the Sierra Nevadas when they reached the rugged Wasatch Mountains. Those are our mountains. That is. We could see them right there from our window. Well, as the two rail lines got closer to Salt Lake, they found that meeting in Salt Lake wasn't going to work. Central Pacific could not find a way to get across the salt flats, and Union Pacific chose to turn north at Ogden and follow the north shore of the Great Salt Lake. This upset Brigham Young, the president of the Mormon Church, and he withdrew all the Mormon support for both parties and decided to just build his own railroad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when I was reading about this, they were talking the Mormons were really hard workers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, they don't drink and they don't... Mm -hmm. They don't fight. Yeah, no ladies of the night. Yep. Mm -hmm. So it actually really affected both sides because they were working for both railroad companies. Sure. So it really affected the progression of both sides once the Mormons were like, okay, we can't work for you anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that's wild. Yep. Well, as the end was nearing, there was really no specific plan as to where the two companies would meet joining the rail lines. Each company kept pushing forward, trying to obtain as much money from the government for the lines laid, as well as inherit the land they placed their lines on. Both companies also believed that whoever laid the most track would enjoy the greatest prestige in the eyes of the nation. The two companies were so focused on completing the most track that as they sent surveying teams ahead of everyone else, they were scoping out land that already had track laid on them. Whoops. <laughs> In the end, the two companies spent about $1 million on grade that was never used. Yeah, it's about $19.5 bucks wasted. <laughs> Today's money. <laughs> Sounds like a government job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, in March of 1869, it was decided by Congress that the meeting location would be Promontory, Utah. They chose Saturday, the 8th of May, 1869, as the day they would join the lines and celebrate. As they began to get closer and closer, the men worked as hard and as fast as possible. The Union Pacific had laid eight miles of track in one day, a feat they boasted, saying Central Pacific had not and could not accomplish. Central Pacific wasn't going to stand for this. They wanted to prove to Union Pacific and the nation that they could beat them. So at 7.15 a.m. on April 28th, they had all the men and supplies carefully laid out to complete this task. Eight Irish track layers and a group of Chinese men set to work. By 1.30, they had laid six miles in six hours and 15 minutes. They stopped working for lunch, and by 7 p.m., they had accomplished the task by laying more than 10 miles of track in one day. This record has yet to be beat, even today. Yeah, and the area that this took place is right outside of the park. So okay. you can see it on the little maps that they give you. Yeah. Kind of cool. We didn't go see it. I don't think that there is anything there. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's part of the auto tour, though. You could go east or west from there and do an auto tour to see. Oh, okay. You know, in your car, what happened where? Okay. 
That makes sense. Well, the celebration for laying the final track was delayed to May 10th for several reasons. One of the reasons for the delay was that Union Pacific had fallen behind schedule. They did not anticipate how much time they needed to build the big trestles across big field just outside of Promontory. Mm -hmm. And we actually passed that area getting to it, right? Um, The next issue was caused by Vice President Thomas Durant of the Union Pacific. As the Durant special train pulled into the little town of Piedmont, Wyoming, he was held hostage by over 400 laid-off tie cutters. These men had been waiting three months to get paid, and they were not about to let him leave the station without their money. (laughs) Justifiable. Yeah. Uh, Going three months without pay, I'd be pretty upset. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) it took two days for the men's pay to arrive. Once they were paid, they unchained his train from the rails and let him go. As the special train moved on, they reached another problem. Due to the holdup in Wyoming, they were off schedule when they reached the river at Devil's Gate Bridge. They realized that part of the bridge support had been washed away from the heavy rainfall and it was not safe to cross. The conductor felt it safe enough for the passenger cars to go across the bridge, but didn't feel it would support the Durant special locomotive due to its size and weight. He unhooked all of the cars and used the locomotive to push him across the bridge. The passengers made it, but the locomotive was stuck on the other side. They then wired a call to Ogden for another train, and the number 119 was sent to save them. Central Pacific's president, Leland Stanford, was unable to take the train he had originally planned on taking as well. He chose to have the Antelope take him to Promontory. En route, they were following a passenger train out sightseeing. As the train passed through a large mountain cut still being cleared, the working men did not see the small green flag flying from the locomotive. The green flag was a sign to them that another train was close behind them. The men got back to work and rolled a huge log down the cut. As the Antelope rounded the corner, it struck the log. The train was not derailed, but it was not able to travel safely anymore. As the train limped to the next station, the cars were coupled to the next available locomotive, the Jupiter. May 10th brought on sunny skies, but it was still cold. There were an estimated 500 to 600 people there to see the final rail laid and spikes driven in. Jupiter was lined up on the west side of the track, and facing it on the east side was the number 119. Four spikes were made and presented for this special day. A golden spike was presented by David Hughes, a San Francisco contractor, with an engraving of... The last spike. And this was on the top of it. Two of the sides had the names of the railroad officers and directors. And then another side said... The Pacific Railroad, ground broke in January 8, 1863, and completed May 8, 1869. The last side read... May God continue the unity of our country as this railroad unites the two great oceans of the world. Presented David Hughes, San Francisco. There was another golden spike and it was donated by Frederick Marriott, proprietor of the San Francisco newsletter newspaper company. Engraved on it was... With this spike, the San Francisco newsletter offers its homage to the great work which has joined the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. This month, May 1869. Nevada's Governor F.A. Triddle had a silver spike forged. The last spike was presented by the Arizona Territory Anson P. Safford. 
It was made of gold, silver, and iron, and the engraving on it read, Ribbed with iron, clad in silver, and crowned with gold. Arizona presents her offering to the enterprise that has banded a continent and dictated a pathway to commerce. Presented by Governor Safford. A special hammer was donated by L.W. Coe, president of San Francisco's Pacific Express Company. He had the hammer heavily plated with silver. That's kind of cool. The last donation used for the connection of the rail lines came from West Evans, a tie contractor for the Central Pacific. He had a billiard table manufacturer build a highly polished tie from California laurel wood. The tie had a silver plaque on it that read, The last tie laid on completion of the Pacific Railroad, May 1869. It also listed the officers and directors of Central Pacific, along with names of the tie maker and donor. Four holes were pre-drilled into the tie to make the hammering of the spikes easier. Because these men were just hammering these spikes directly into the wood with no pre-drilling holes like we do today when Mm. we do stuff. (laughs) Well, as the ceremony for the final spikes being driven kicked off, workers brought in the laurel wood tie and placed it on the ground. They then laid the last rail sections across it. A prayer was offered by Reverend Dr. John Todd. Then a speech was given by Dr. H.W. Harkness, a Sacramento newspaper publisher and editor. I wonder if he's related to the uh, Harkness from the Harkness Hotel up there in Idaho. I know. I thought that too when I read that. I wonder how many branches of a Harkness family there are. <laughs> yeah, it's not a common name. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, he then presented Leland Stanford with the two golden spikes. Thomas Durant was presented with the silver and gold mixed spikes. Stanford then gave a joyous speech to the crowd. Durant was to follow him, but he had a headache. (laughs) Some say the headache may have been caused by a little too much imbibing the night before in Ogden. Since he was unable to give the speech, Chief Engineer General Granville Dodge took his place and gave a few words. After the two speeches, Mr. Coe gave Stanford and Durant the silver hammer to gently tap the precious metal spikes into the ground. They couldn't hammer them in like you'd normally swing a hammer in the spikes because the metals are a little soft and both the hammer and spikes would just kind of squish when they were struck. Yeah. Could you imagine being Mr. Durant and this is like this huge moment in your life and you're too hungover to even talk to the people? (laughs) Yeah, celebrated a day too early. You're like, oh, man, I don't even know what I'm doing right now. Made a total ass of himself. (laughs) It's not enough Alka-Seltzer for him at that time, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's all they would have had back then. (laughs) Well, after the men gently hammered in the spikes, they were removed from the laurel tie. The ceremonial wood tie was then replaced with just the standard pine tie. The three regular iron spikes were driven in. And the last one was wired to the transcontinental telegraph line and the hammer was wired to it as well. So I actually had to have Drifter explain this to me because <laughs> I didn't understand what this meant. Uh, just basically made a telegraph tapper between the uh, spike and the hammer. Right? Yeah. Yeah, because in my mind I thought, were they hammering in the line the whole way? Like, how does that even work? It, it didn't make <laughs> sense in my mind. And, and then you explain, well, the train would be next to the line 
and then the conductor could throw a connector out onto the line, tap his message out that he needed, and then pull the connector back off and move on. So basically by wiring it together, they created that connection, right? Yeah, it's just like the uh, phone company tapping into a line when they're up there working on it. Yeah, so now it makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, they wanted the nation to hear the blows as the spike was driven in. Super fun idea they did. Pre-radio. Yeah, it's actually really cool. Mm-hmm. Stanford readied himself to take a mighty swing at the spike, but as he brought the hammer down, he missed and hit the tie instead. <laughs> Which is easy to do. If you, I don't know if you noticed when we were in the museum, but the hammers come down. The end of the hammer is about the same size as the top of the spike. I did so not notice. it isn't like you have your carpenting, uh, carpenter's hammer, you know, significantly bigger than the head of a nail. Mm-hmm. They're about the same size. And they've okay. got to be, they're so narrow, or I guess close to the rail itself, that yeah. you can't put like this big sledgehammer in there. So they could come to this severe taper down. So I wouldn't be able to hit it, not with a swing. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah, because the nails kind of have like a, a head on it that's bigger on one side than the other. Mm-hmm. And that would be what would hold the rail down. Right. And the rail kind of comes like bows out over the nail. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you would have – you couldn't get a sledgehammer in there. I never even put that all together. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess I can't make fun of him for that. Yeah, not too much. They could have practiced before that, knowing this is a big deal, but whatever. It's just history they're making, you know? Right? Well, Durant, he was next. And And drunk. He was, yeah, still drunk from last (laughs) night. Guess what he did? He took a weak swing at the spike, and not only did he miss it, but he didn't even hit the tie. So I guess worse? Worse, definitely. (laughs) Made a bigger ass of himself. Since the two men could not complete the task, they had a regular rail worker hammer in the last tie with three mighty and, I might I say, accurate hits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some sources give a name of the person that drove in the last spike, and I didn't want to put them in there because according to our tour guide, she said that they do not know the name of the person that completed this task. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of going with her. Right. At 12.47, telegrapher W.N. Schilling sent the long-awaited message. D-O-N-E. Done. Done. I was actually going to look up the how to... Um, Tap it out? Yeah. What did they call that? Morse code. Thank you. I was actually going to look that up, and I didn't. Were you going to tap it out for us on your spoons? <gasps> oh, my gosh. I'm sorry so I brought that up. should have. These men worked tirelessly, surveying hundreds of miles ahead of the teams alone in new and dangerous territory to plan the route. They built bridges over rivers, blasted tunnels through granite with dangerous nitroglycerin because they couldn't get enough black powder, pushed through snow and rain, as well as installed the nation's second transcontinental telegraph. They accomplished one of the largest and unimaginable feats at the time. Yes, they did. Mm-hmm. Promontory Summit was the chosen location for the final rail lines simply because when it came time to agree on the meeting location, it was the middle of the two lines. Mm-hmm. Makes no, sense. Yeah. No town was out there and no town was ever going to be out there. Because of this, the trail stop was moved to Ogden in 1870 and Promontory Summit began to get lost in history. In 1904, the Lucian Cutoff was complete. The new rail shortened the line by 45 miles and bypassed Promontory Pass altogether. Just like Promontory, the two iconic locomotives were forgotten about as well. 
this actually really kind of broke my heart. Yeah, kind of blows me away that this is such a significant time, a significant thing. Yeah. And they said, no, it's fine. Yeah. We don't care. (laughs) The deed is done. Well, we found out what happened to him. Uh, The Jupiter was used as a passenger locomotive for the Central Pacific. In 1870, the name Jupiter was dropped, it was repainted, and the number was changed from 60 to 1195. They also gave it a new boiler and bonnet. By 1893, the wood-burning locomotive was converted to coal. Later that same year, it was sold to the Gila Valley, Globe, and Northern Railroad in Arizona. Since it was the first locomotive they had on their railroad, they renamed it to number one. They used the locomotive on their lines until the early 1900s. From there, it was sold to scrappers for a thousand bucks. Yeah, the Union Pacific number 119 continued working as a freight locomotive. It was later renumbered 343 and worked until the early 1900s, where, like the Jupiter, it was sold to scrappers for $1,000. Yeah, it's crazy. (laughs) Just crazy. Well, 96 years went by. You know, we were talking about this and was saying how crazy would it be that these are just still sitting out in somebody's scrapyard and Mm -hmm. nobody knows. Yeah. They went all through this reproduction and recreation and the original ones are just sitting out there like in a wrecking yard. (laughs) Like the Mormon meteor where it was just put in the junkyard and then all of a sudden one day they're like, what happened to that thing? (laughs) Yeah, we should probably find that. How crazy. Anyway, 96 years went by before the site was declared a National Historic Site on July 30th of 1965. Bernice Gibbs Anderson worked as a correspondent and staff writer for the Salt Lake Tribune. In the 1920s, she began sending letters to the U.S. Congress, U.S. Presidents, and Park Service officials asking for their help in recognizing the importance of the site. Someone who cared. Yep. Well, she grew up in that area. Right. So she was very familiar with it. Knowing what happened there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, tourists would travel out to the area to see the monument and ask her why the area had not been made a national monument. They'd complain about the lack of signs, and others would say the stone monument that was there was not only inadequate, but badly destroyed by weather and vandals. Yeah, one of the uh, things I read said somebody complained to her saying they could build a monument better than this in their own backyard. <laughs> right. Yeah, without a doubt. <laughs> the way it looks nowadays for sure. Yeah. Yep. So today when you go visit the park, you will get to see the original stone monument that was placed marking the spot where the east met the west. But the monument has been moved to prevent it from further damage. And it's actually out front of the building. It used to be right there in front of the rail lines. hmm uh, the Park Service has done what they can to restore the monument to its original glory. And it's nowhere like it ought to have been. Yeah. It's a shame. Mm-hmm. Well, with the acceptance of the site being recognized as a national monument and people preserving the history, brought about the question of what did happen to these two locomotives and how do we bring them back to the site. In 1975, O'Connor Engineering Laboratories of Costa Mesa, California, stepped up to the challenge of remanufacturing the Jupiter and number 119. Do you know how many train enthusiast wet dreams this would have been? <laughs> yeah. Like, holy shit, we actually get to build a real life-sized model train, basically, yeah. working one? Yeah, that's, that's exactly amazing. It. I mean, the the amount of man hours, the volunteer research. So they wouldn't mm-hmm. have had to pay anybody to do any of this, I'm sure. So <laughs> many enthusiasts into this. Oh, Yeah. 
well, and I just want to hug these people. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and what they came up with was phenomenal. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. We've got pictures. Yes. These guys had no plans or blueprints of the original locomotives to work from. Um, I mean, they were built probably before the railroad was even completed. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, all that would have been gone. And they used a locomotive design engineer's handbook from 1870 and micrometer scalings of enlarged 1869 photos of the two locomotives. Just scaling them up from yep. a picture. That's amazing. So it took them four years of work. With two of those years just dedicated to creating blueprints needed to recreate these. It's, that's insane to me. Mm -hmm. So once they were finished, everything was within a quarter inch of the original. That's how close these guys got to it. Phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. The locomotives were loaded onto four trucks and hauled 800 miles to Promontory Summit. They were commissioned into service May 10th, 1979 at the 110th anniversary of the Golden Spike Ceremony. So cool. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's amazing. Well, we went there recently, as we said, and <laughs> it's technically their winter season, and they had the trains already put away for maintenance. So they actually take them apart, I feel like she said, completely, yeah. totally disassembles them and puts them all back together. Yeah, because so. somebody was there working on them mm -hmm. while we were there. Yeah, and they have a machine shop on site because there are no parts for this. So oh. if there's anything that breaks, they have to fix it or make it themselves. I remember her saying that. Yeah. Yep. Wild. Well, anyway, we were able to drive up to the engine house where they are stored and we got to see them up close. We weren't able to get right up to them, but mm -hmm. right up to the front of them and still some good pictures. Yeah. Uh, during the off season, they have scheduled tours of the engine house and we kind of lucked out and got there just in time. Uh, the guy inside the visitor center just asked us, are you guys interested in seeing? Well, there's a tour up there. Otherwise, you'll have to wait for a couple hours. Like, yeah, we'll go. Yeah, we're like, <laughs> okay, bye. We'll be back. Yeah. So the tours run from October 21st to mid-April. They run for about 20 minutes and they start 10 o'clock in the morning. They've got another one at 1 p.m. and the last one's at 3. Uh, the winter hours for the park are from 9 to 5 and they're closed on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. So plan ahead. Yeah. But weekends you can get up there. Um, during the spring and summer, they're open seven days a week from 9 a.m. to 5. The trains this time actually come out on the track, and this allows for a much more up-close view of them as well as a chance to see them run, mm -hmm. which I was going to say, did you notice in the engine house, the trains were parked like directly underneath like a, I don't know what you would call that, like a chimney? It's like a hood vent over your stove. Yeah. And I thought, I, I bet they run these things inside of here. And then that would just vent them right out. Yep. Well, they said during the running season, they don't turn them off because it takes so long to heat the boilers back up for them to run the next day. So they bring them down kind of kind of like your computer going to sleep. Uh, so it isn't at full steam, but they, there's no way they could shut them off and fire them back up the next day. So they never shut off. And so those uh, have to be vented. Okay. Unless they're doing the boiler wash. Yep. When they actually shut it down. Yep. Okay. Okay. This is making more sense. You were able to hear her better than I was, unfortunately, with the masks. And I was kind of standing back. I couldn't hear everything. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. Uh, so if you want to see the, the trains out running in the summertime, uh, the schedule of that is at 10 a.m. the arrival of the Jupiter. And then at 1030, the arrival of the number 119. At 1 p.m., they do a demonstration run with both locomotives, which would be fun to see that one. Mm-hmm. The number 119 leaves the tracks for the engine house at 350 
and the Jupiter follows at 4.30. So they do have a boiler wash schedule online like we talked about, and you'll want to check that to make sure that both trains are out for you to see when you go. And they perform regular maintenance on these trains so that they can keep them running for future generations. Like we talked about, they do everything there. Hmm. So all this information I got online too. So I'll I'm put sure, a link to it in the show notes. Too. Yeah, because I'm sure it's going to change. I know during COVID things got really weird and they shut down for a while. They're back up again. We did have to wear masks the whole time while we were in there. Mm-hmm. Um, just to be aware of that too. State park things, yeah. Yep. So check the website before you go. Yeah. The trains do run off their original source of fuel from when they were first built and were not ever converted to diesel like modern trains are today or other replicas are often converted to more modern things. So they're built to run the way that they were originally built to. Mm-hmm. The Jupiter originally had a wood boiler and the number 119 always had a coal boiler. When we were at the engine house, we could see there's a pile of coal and a pile of wood out there that are used to run both the locomotives. It's kind of fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, During our tour of the engine house, we were told that they do a winter run of the trains, and this is the ranger's favorite time to see them. She said that when it's really cold outside, which in December out there, anywhere out here, it's pretty damn cold, uh, you can see the steam just building up from the trains and hitting the ground and just steaming up everything around it. And you also get to see the difference in the two engines. The ranger told us that they hold this event at the end of the year, so every 29th, 30th, and 31st in December. Yeah, so when I was on the website getting all the information, I checked to see if there was anything about the winter locomotive demonstration. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I could find was them talking about the 2020 season. So I really hope that they're doing it again this year because, I mean, we were both talking about it, how we got to come back and see this because it would be really neat. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. If we get out there, it'll be Instagram. You know, we'll put stuff up and keep y'all posted. Yep. Absolutely. So we did find out that every year on May 10th, they do a reenactment of the last spike and everyone comes out dressed in their best 1800 wear. And after this ceremony, they retake the famous picture of the two trains. Didn't they call that the champagne picture because they were doing a toast or holding out a champagne bottle from one train to the next or something? Yeah. One guy has a bottle of champagne and then the guy on the number 119 has like two glass bottles of beer in his hand. Okay. And they're like leaning out over the front to toast each other. And then everybody's around cheering. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. So the ranger was telling us in 2019, it was the 150 year anniversary. And it was their largest turnout that they ever had. And they had almost 20,000 people there. I think she said they couldn't even fit them all in the picture. (laughs) Yeah, no way they could do 20,000. Not even 2,000. Yeah. The park is part of our national parks, so they do charge you a fee to go inside and see where the final track was laid. It's 20 bucks a car or 15 bucks if you're on a motorcycle. If you have a national parks pass, then you get in for free. Uh, we buy a parks pass every year. It's only 85 bucks, and most often it's paid for itself. Sometimes in a single weekend, it's paid for itself. Yeah. So. Yeah, when we went to the Grand Canyon, I think, because we went to like all the different stops and you had to like pay for each one. Yeah, Zion's, Bryce, and the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. Pretty yep. sure it paid for that. And then uh, we spent some time up around the Yellowstone area and had gone into it twice, I think, in one weekend. So that would have been 40 bucks, you know. Yeah. Yep. Stuff like that. So definitely worth it if you're going to be in the area, out here in the West at least, where there's a lot more national parks. But 
Yeah, we use it all the time, so mm-hmm. it's good. Once you're inside the visitor center building, they have several displays, and it's talking about the building of the rail lines. And then this is where you saw the hammer you're talking about, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Okay. And they've got you know examples of the equipment that they use to build the lines. And then they have displays that show the difference in the spikes as well as the the line used because it changed in size, right? Yeah, diameter basically because mm-hmm. they changed as the trains were built and got heavier. The rails got thicker and they started spreading them farther because the trains again were bigger and heavier and had to be spread farther apart and all that. So yeah, these early trains that you were talking about here wouldn't run on a modern track because they're, these trains are too narrow. Well, and that's why she said, was it Big Ben, the the train I was asking her about? That's why she said he that train couldn't go up for the 150-year anniversary. Oh, big boy. Big yeah. boy. Says it went through the, the Wasatch Mountains here and kind of went by it, mm-hmm. but it couldn't go up there because the tracks, right? Yep, exactly. Why. Okay. Okay. So there is also a 20-minute video there that you can watch as well. We actually didn't have time to watch it. I think you can buy it there, but we didn't do that either. Right. <laughs> Um, outside behind the building, this is where history was made. Here you get to see the location, the last lines and spikes were driven in. They've actually have a replica wood tie there of the California laurel wood and a silver plaque on it. And I did notice that there were pre-drilled holes in the the laurel wood tie, but there's no spikes in it. It's just kind of sitting there. Yeah, they set it up. They had wooden chairs out there and a telegraph line. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's all fake at that point. Yeah. And a couple old wooden barrels set up like they're getting ready to drive everything through. And I'm sure it's just set up that way in preparation for the recreation ceremony every year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the original four spikes that were donated for the ceremony are not inside the building. The gold spike donated by David Hughes was given back to him in 1892. He donated it to the museum Leland Stanford Jr. University in Palo Alto, California. Arizona's spike somehow made its way to New York, where it's inside of a museum. The Nevada spike was returned to Virginia City Jewelers. They polished it, and because they were the only ones that didn't engrave the spike, they engraved it uh, with words that said, To Leland Stanford, president of the Central Pacific Railroad, to the iron of the east and the gold of the west, Nevada adds her link of silver to span the continent and wed the oceans. The spike was then delivered to Stanford and placed along the golden spike in the Stanford University Museum. The last golden spike was lost. So some sources say it was given to one of the Union Pacific dignitaries and it was lost then. Other sources say it was given back to the newsletter. And if that's the case, there is a chance it was destroyed in the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. Kind of a bummer. Yeah. Fell through the cracks, right? Literally. (laughs) The hammer used in the ceremony was given to Leland as well and is on display at the Stanford Museum. The laurel wood tie was on display in Sacramento until 1890. It was then moved to San Francisco offices and it too was destroyed in the earthquake and fire of 1906. It kind of sounds like they should have just given everything to Leland. (laughs) He was like the only one that took good care of the things he was given. He's the only responsible man around. (laughs) I know. Durant was drunk. He was like, just give me everything. I'll just take care of it, okay? Yeah, I'll, I'll hold this for you. I'll send you a picture. Snapchat. Well, yeah. The park is about an hour and a half away from Salt Lake, north of Salt Lake. 
Uh, it's not buy anything at all. So when yeah. you do go to the park, make sure that you're prepared. Top off your gas because the nearest one's about 25 miles away or so. Uh, they do have some picnic tables out there that you can enjoy your lunch at the park, but you need to bring your own lunch with you. They don't have any food service out mm -hmm. there. And the weather's a little different there being right next to the lake. Uh, when we went, it was warm and sunny at our house, but there it was a bit cold and windy. Yeah. The site's pretty close to the Salt Lake and in the mountains, a higher elevation. And thankfully, we brought jackets with us. And my pancharka. And, yeah, <laughs> pancharka. Yes. Well, it's so crazy to think that such a man-made wonder was created and then forgotten about for almost a hundred years. Mm -hmm. These guys have done a great job at preserving the area and telling the history of the railroad. We are just so used to hopping in our cars and traveling at our own convenience nowadays that we don't think about what went into getting us to where we are today. Around the area, there are a couple other things to see, which we did as well to help round out the trip. Nearby is a sculpture of a sort called the Spiral Jetty. Yeah, it's pretty cool to stop at. Uh, we stopped there and the water was way out, so I'm sure it looks different with the water there. But mm -hmm. it didn't really justify a full episode here, but we'll touch on it and the history of it and whatnot on our Patreon. Yeah. Yeah, and we also made a visit to what's referred to as the Rocket Garden. Yeah, on Google Maps, you'll find it. It's listed as ATK. Yeah, this is out front of a facility that does a lot of rocket engineering, fabrication, and remanufacturing. They have parts on display ranging from missiles and space shuttle equipment. I don't know. Do you want to do a Patreon on this one? I don't think there's enough there to do a Patreon. Okay. Even. Yeah, yeah. It's just kind of a cool thing to see. Well, Some folks will just check it out from the parking lot. We walked through the whole thing. The Junior Gypsy is all into the space stuff and wanted to check that out, so... Yeah. And it was cool, you know, a lot of space shuttle parts and whatnot, but yeah. it's all just steel parts. You kind of have to have a little bit of a fascination for it to really appreciate it, I suppose. Otherwise, you can see it from your car and say, cool. I don't know. Like, I thought the thing that was really cool was when the park ranger was telling us about it. Mm -hmm. She said, you know, here, here we are in Promontory where the east and the west were connected with the railroad. And just right literally down the street from there is the next big connection to our travel mm -hmm. when we launched the rocket to the moon. Yep, that's true. And I thought, that's really neat to kind of think that these two huge events in travel are right here by each other. Yeah, huge engineering feats of mm -hmm. man for sure. Yep. Yeah, pretty awesome. Well, there you have it, folks. That was our mini adventure to see the site that tied the nation together. Yes. So. I have a dad joke for you. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. I, that's exactly what I was hoping. Woohoo! Yeah. Let's okay. see what you've got. Can't I wait. have a train dad joke because we talked about trains today. So That sounds very fitting. Okay. Do you know what the difference between a teacher and a train is? The difference between a teacher and a train? Yeah. I know. Okay. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> One says, spit out your gum. The other says, choo choo. <laughs> I was so bummed in by that train whistle there. <laughs> oh, so am I. Chugga, 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 chugga. Choo choo. All right. Then. That's what a train sounds like. <laughs> That's exactly what a train sounds like. <laughs> All right. That was the dad joke, huh? Yay. I made sure not to yell into the microphone. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> says thank you. <laughs> All right, then. Well, there was that. Yeah. <laughs>
All right. Well, thank you all so very much for joining us on our adventures and supporting our little podcast here. Yes. Uh, we'll have pictures of our visit up on the website. RebelAtLarge.com, where you'll find links to our social media, deals, and email. And if you want to follow along on any of that, we're most active on Instagram. At RebelAtLarge, if you'd like to follow along. Anything else you'd like? I'm going to regret asking that. Yeah, we got married. All right, then. <laughs> we'll talk to you all here in a couple of weeks. Thanks, hubby dubby. Safe travels. We'll see you all down the road. <laughs> Good God. We had just done some work on the new Adventure Mobile. Adventure Mobile. Okay, let's start over. I don't know why I want to say mobile. <laughs> I don't know. In 1862, Theodore Judah convict. He didn't convict anybody. <laughs> um, as the rails advanced on, some of the camps moved along with it. Excuse Not some me. of it. Hold on, my ear is ringing, so I can't hear out of one ear. Mm. And it sounds really weird. Okay. Ready? Yep. Let me start that over. Okay. Let me start over. So once they were finished, everything was... was well, well... A lot of that was just made sense, too. Oh, well, to you, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I do the dad jokes here. Right, I know. That's my job. Yeah. <laughs> Pausing for no reason. Okay. Let me start that over again.